just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You are the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. I'm Randy Robinson here, and today's guest says that almost everything uh, Americans know about Jesus is wrong. So you're going to want to stick around and uh, be a part of the conversation. By the way, if you're watching us live, you can jump in the chat uh, if you're on a chat-enabled channel and be a part of the conversation. Before we get to uh, the book where we, he talks about this, uh, I want to show you uh, Jared Brock's bio from his website. Uh, it looks like this, and there's a couple things uh, well, you'll you'll note that he's done a PBS documentary. Um, he's also written for lots of newspapers, including like The Guardian, USA Today, uh, Christianity Today, Time Magazine. So prolific writer. Uh, but he also has been to several different countries, including North Korea and Transnistria. What, what Jared, welcome to Life Today. Thank you. What the heck is Transnistria? So Transnistria is kind of a fake country between Moldova. Uh, it's it's in Moldova technically, but it's controlled by the Russians for some magical reason. And uh, we were working on a documentary a couple of years ago, and it's the poorest white poverty we've ever seen. And we met this woman who she showed me the, the scar on her chest where her husband had run a knife through her before lighting their house on fire and running away. And she was praising God that the local church rescued her and her children. It was an unbelievable experience. And yeah, Transnistria, pray for them. They are under the boot of the Russians and uh, it's extreme poverty. It's crazy. Wow, okay. See, I've already learned something. Uh, the other thing I wanna ask you about, <laughs> on a little lighter note, you don't own a cell phone, is that still true? That is true. I gave up my Crackberry about 11 years ago. <laughs> we, we volunteered our way through Central America and when we were uh, in Guatemala, we saw this uh, boy, 19 years old, no legs, drinking um, with a straw from a rusty fire hydrant. Mm. And I just realized that I need to get serious about stewardship. And we just radically simplified our finances and our life. And we just tried to create margin for ministry. So yeah, his name was Danilo or Daniel in, in English. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. And as, as the years have progressed, I not owning a cell phone just gets smarter and smarter as I see my high school kids in my Sunday school class, like so addicted to TikTok and stuff. And um, I made a documentary on pornography addiction and, you know, just the idea of having porn in my pocket. I'm just so grateful that that's, that's been something I've been able to avoid just by not owning a phone. So yeah, I don't regret it at all. I, I, I get it. I uninstalled a bunch of apps on mine, social media apps, um, ones that I don't, well, I mean, I use some for it, but just not getting the notifications constantly yeah. just drives me nuts. But I do also have a Bible in multiple languages in my pocket, so I can appreciate that. Um, let's get to your book. Uh, I'll show people what it looks like. It is called A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. And as I said in the open, uh, there are uh, apparently some misconceptions. And I'll tell you what's funny, and I think, Jared, you'll, you'll take this in the, in the right way. When I, when I saw the pitch come through, I went, oh, let me get this guy on, and I'll set him straight. And I started looking at what you said, and I was like, oh, he's right. He's right about that. He's right about that. Oh, okay. So walk us through. I love the topic. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that I actually love to read. But what drew you to uh, 
maybe a lot of the misconceptions about Christ. Yeah, so this story actually starts in our kitchen. My wife, Michelle, and I were cooking Mexican food, and I was tossing beans in jalapeno and lime juice. And she looked at the beans with kind of a wrinkled nose, and she was like, I wonder how often Jesus farted. And we descended, descended into a fit of giggles, and we started talking about just like Jesus the human. Like, mm. hey, do you know what? He never would have eaten potatoes or tomatoes because those were from the New World, and and he we have no record of him going to North America, so he never would have had salsa or pasta sauce. How sad is that? And we're like, how did he get around? How did he pay his bills? What were his politics? What were his economics? And yeah, so that's how a God named Josh started was just wanting to understand the human side of the very, uh, very human and very God, Jesus. What maybe did you discover that uh, you didn't know before? Like, I mean, the first thing is just like that his name wasn't Jesus, right? <laughs> his name in Hebrew would have been Yehoshua ben Yehosef, which is Joshua, son of Joseph. If, if he was born today, we'd call him probably Josh Josephson. But Yehoshua in Hebrew became Yeshua in Aramaic, which became Jesus. We went from Greek to Latin to English as Jesus. So, you know, he's not going to, if he shows up today at the local coffee shop, he's not going to be mad that we call him Jesus instead of Josh. But it's just kind of one step of realizing how far removed uh, from him we are and how maybe we probably just need to pay attention to the Bible more. Yeah, well, and, and I think that some of the misconceptions come from some mistranslations in Scripture um, or just some wrong assumptions. Uh, I, don't, I hadn't seen this in the notes. Do you think Jesus was actually a carpenter? So that's a perfect example okay. of a translation, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. so when when the very English British translators of the King James Bible get to the word um, tecton in Greek or haras karas in in Hebrew, they translate it as carpenter, right? There's tons of wood, tons of oak trees in the UK, which is where I am right now. Um, whereas we know from Scripture that Israel is very barren of trees; they actually have to import carpenters from other places to teach them how to build the temple. And Jesus, uh, there is a specific Greek term for wood carpenter, tectong xylon, that's never applied to Jesus. He's mm -hmm. only given the more general term of craftsman. Yeah. And Jesus never talks about wood mm -hmm. in the Bible. He's, he, he mentions it twice in his parables and stories and teachings, but he's always talking about stones and rocks. He's yep. talking about wine presses. He's talking about towers and wells and millstones and he's he's always talking about stones so whether he was a mason or not we don't know i don't want to go into like illuminati uh sort of theories on was jesus the original stonemason and all that silliness but um there is more likely that he was a general craftsman than he was particularly a wood carpenter well i, I have been told and i will rely on you to be the expert here but i've been told that um when Jesus was, was young, that there was a major uh, building, stone-type building project not too far from Nazareth that his father, Joseph, likely could have been employed at. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I did not dive huge into Joseph. It's a whole other, that's a whole other book, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I, I really try to keep the lens focused on Scripture, actually. So... What I would do is I would read through each of the Gospels 50 times using a different lens for each time. So I'd read through it a couple times uh, looking for like, what were Jesus's economics? What were his politics? What was his philosophy? How did he treat women? And I would I would just read, 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 read. 
So this book actually contains over a thousand scripture references. So like full disclosure, I only wrote like half of it. It's just like so full of scripture and <laughs> obviously spent a lot of time in, in the concordances, in the Greek and the Hebrew, mm. in the commentaries and just, yeah, tried to, you know, I grew up in the church. I got saved at 17 and I picture Jesus as kind of this like long haired mayonnaise white dude. And that's kind of all been stripped away as I wrote this book. Well, uh, you're in, you're in Wales now. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Guelph, Ontario, near Toronto. Okay. So do you know where, I mean, the, did they have white skin or lighter skin, I should say, uh, blue eyed Jesus's before, you know, the Nazis or something or, you know, where does that come from? Yeah. So there's actually a, like a famous painting in like the forties or fifties. Uh, and it was done by this like commercial photographer and that's the most famous, uh, image if we can call it that, mm. a depiction of Jesus. It's had over a billion prints made. So it's a hugely influential picture. Before that, it was um, Leonardo da Vinci, Salvador Mundi, mm. which they think was probably based on Caesar Borgia. Um, so again, just very <laughs> kind of Latinized white dudes. Um, but what's interesting is we know from the era what the average guy looked like. So Something that in ancient literature is very frequent is if someone was really tall, you mention it. So like Saul is tall, Zacchaeus is short, Samson is strong, right? Um, one of the kings in the Old Testament is voluptuously fat. Um, you know, Delilah is alluring and Esther is beautiful. Like they always mention people's looks. If, they're, you know, Socrates is hideously ugly. Therefore, the fact that people still listen to him proves his philosophy must be true. You know, like that's <laughs> something that the ancient writers did. There's no mention of Jesus's looks at all. So the assumption that we've got to come to is that he was probably just average looking. So yeah. what did the average person look like at the time? Well, first century Jews at the time had kind of dark olive skin, black hair, dark eyes. They were between five foot five and five foot seven. The average was five foot six. So Jesus was probably significantly shorter than we realized. Mm -hmm. um, we, if, we do, if you do the math, he walked over 21,000 miles in his life. And if he was a stone worker, He's probably quite lean, quite strong, mm -hmm. uh, quite, you know, has the ability to endure arduous journeys. He's wicked smart and he does not wear long robes. He actually makes fun of people who wear long robes in the Bible. He's never caught in scripture in a long Greek stoli. He's always in a shorter chiton, the, the working man's dress. So it's a very different picture of the Jesus we all know and love. It's, it's weird to think like I'd be looking down physically on my Lord and Savior. I would just it's just not something that i normally picture yeah uh we're gonna have to revamp our easter uh special yes. at church uh, next year there's there's some things we might it might have gotten wrong i i it's interesting one thing that uh you do talk about that i've always found interesting was we talk about you know <laughs> i mean I, I think i've probably said it and as soon as i said it thought oh, that's kind of a dumb statement we say well jesus only had 12 disciples you know and his 12 disciples and and there was obviously a significance to that inner core but the reality is it wasn't just 12 men that jesus called there were lots of others what did you mm -hmm. find yeah so scripture if you actually read it with a fine tooth comb there are 72 disciples there are 12 apostles the inner 12 mm -hmm. um which interestingly six of them are named james james judas judas simon simon so it's an easy way to learn the first six apostles <laughs> um but uh and a bunch of them are cousins and and mm -hmm. uh and business partners they jesus didn't just like pick these dudes at random he knew a lot of these guys ahead of time they'd been friends or relations already um but yeah there's 72 disciples 
We know five of his named female disciples, um, which is incredible. Uh, we actually know more about some of those female disciples than we do about some of his uh, inner 12, 12 apostles. apostles yeah. yeah, and uh, it's, it's women that bankroll Jesus's ministry. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to assign prestige to your rabbi, you give them really posh uh, patrons, right? You, maybe you give them Caesar or Herod or uh, the high priest in Jerusalem. You, you get them really good patrons. Whereas all four of the gospel writers are very uh, honest to admit that Jesus is uh, quite shamefully uh, bankrolled by women, which of course, you know, women at the time are second class citizens. And, and Jesus is supported by these women. Uh, we know the names of three of them, uh, Mary, Susanna, Joanna. One of them is actually Herod's household's uh, manager's wife. So like Jesus is being bankrolled by enemy money. It's the equivalent of like Volodymyr Zelensky and the Ukrainians being bankrolled by Putin's accountant. It's an insane story when you think about it. Like <laughs> Jesus is using enemy money to advance the kingdom of God and take down the empire of man. Like this story is incredible. So yeah, I, I love that uh, Jesus has female disciples. You know, like all four gospels are very clear that when all the other disciples abandon Jesus, there are four women left at the foot of the cross contracted with the contrasted with the four Roman soldiers. Yeah. They're the last to see him before he dies. They're the first to see him alive. Um, yeah, he, he has a special place for women in his ministry. I don't, I don't want to get you off too far on a tangent. I, one of my soapboxes is the way that the church uh, has treated women over the years, and not so much like bad treatment of them, but just this idea of kind of pigeonholing them and not letting them be everything that God may have designed them to be. And part of that is when I do look at scripture, I go, he, he didn't diminish them or hold them back in any way. Um, where do you stand on some of that? Yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, if you look at scripture, the first, you know, Mary Magdalene is called the apostle to the apostles. She's the one who proclaims Jesus is risen to the rest yeah. of the disciples. Mm -hmm. First church planter in Europe is a female. Paul plants multiple churches with Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife mm -hmm. team. He goes down to a river to find a local church that's being hosted by a woman. We see women as prophetesses. We see them in every role in scripture except for the role of elder. There's there's unquestionably, Paul talks about the headship of man. You know, as, as a husband, I'm responsible before God for my home. But what the, what the biblical writers introduced is a radical concept at the time of mutual submission. Husbands love and respect your wives. Why? She's my property. Why would I do that? Like, yeah. why would I care what she thinks? Like, it doesn't matter. And Jesus goes, there are no more slaves, no more free, no more rich, no more poor, no more male, no more female. In Christ, everyone has equal value. Yeah. Unheard of, yeah. right? Slaves have equal value to their masters. Ridiculous. Like, Jesus's politics are radically egalitarian now, let alone 2,000 years mm. ago. Uh, it, we can't understand the value that this must have given to women. And the only way we have a glimpse of it is the fact that tons of rich women followed Jesus mm. and bankrolled him and his disciples. That to me suggests that there was something so unique in his message, specifically for women, that they latched onto it and followed him. Well, do you think Mary and Martha were, were well off, Martha in particular? Uh, we don't see it in scripture. We don't see yeah. it. Okay. I don't know. They, they had enough to host potentially 72 disciples in Jesus. Yeah, that's pretty so, good. Right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> with yeah. Lazarus. That's not, that's not nothing, especially yeah. in those times. All right. You, so you mentioned the egalitarianism of Jesus. Um, that has been interpreted by some 
I think usually people with an agenda, an agenda that to say that Jesus was either a socialist or to go so far as to say the early church was communist. Uh, what, what do you see when you look at scripture? Yeah, so Jesus's economics are deeply troubling for certainly people living under the Roman Empire, and they're definitely troubling for those of us who live in a capitalist empire. So is Jesus a communist? The answer is no, but <laughs> so Karl Marx uh, was, uh, so what he did, Karl Marx and the early communists, they basically, they, they lifted two phrases directly from Acts 2 and Acts 4 verbatim, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That in the Christian conception is the ultimate economy that I work with the power and the skills and the might and the drive that God has given me. And I only keep what I need and everything else above that. I give it to those in need, the hurting, the lost, the broken, the poor. That's, that's so beautiful. That's biblical economics. But then Marx goes, now let's force the secular world to do this. And it just falls apart every single time it's been <laughs> yeah. tried. I've been to Russia. I've been to China. I've been to North Korea. You try to force Christian economics. First of all, if it's force and Christian, it's not Christian. And as you try to force from each to each on a secular world, you just end up with Stalin's, you end up with Hitler's, you end up with um, you know, all these horrible dictators through history. So, you know, Marx's, Marx's big problem is that he forgot about human nature. Jesus is radical when it comes to money. He is against interest. He says loan to anyone, including your enemies, and expect nothing in return. Uh, he's against unjust gain. Uh, he's against unjust scales. He upholds the whole Old Testament and he fills it up with love. There's you know, everything you read in the Old Testament, though, those economic laws, Jesus goes above and beyond in the New Testament. So he is all about, you know, give until it hurts. Love your enemies. If You, you know, his, his cousin, John the Baptizer, says, if you have two coats, give one away. You're, you've stolen a coat from the poor. So his, Jesus' economics are radical by any stretch. Um, but what happens in Acts 2? The early church hears the words of Jesus and they just automatically overflows in koinonia, in, mm. in communal shared possessions. They start selling their extra properties, their extra land, and they distribute it to those in need. And what happens? The Bible says there's no more poor people among them. And that's the radical thing that makes the church go viral is the fact that the outside world looks at them and go, wow, like we're under the boot of the Romans and you still don't have poor people among you because you love each other so well. That's an inspiration for us in the rich West today. Do you think that that is a, uh, a statement for the church and how the church can voluntarily take care of those in need? Or is, do you think that is a, a governmental structure edict, a, a New Testament law? There's no way that the secular world can ever force Christian values on, on the population. You're, just, you're never going to get people to obey and to willingly submit. It's the Holy Spirit in us that drives us to sacrifice, that drives us to loan without interest, to give sacrificially. There's just no way it's going to happen by a secular structure. Like, I mean, try locking down Canada or America for another lockdown and see what happens. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> well, and we'll try enforcing things like, um, you know, no adultery uh, onto a population. I mean, there's even with the very clear detrimental effects of that, if you were to make it law, as in some places, it people, it just, there's some things that just don't work from a secular government yeah. standpoint. You're absolutely right. And the thing, Randy, is 
but does that mean the church should give up on trying, right? Like, should the church give up on trying to eradicate poverty from our midst? Like, the Old Testament makes it really clear. It, God says in uh, Deuteronomy, um, the poor will always be in the land, but there need not be any poor among you if you hold fast to mm. the laws I give you this day. Mm. And then it's a veritable barrage of economic law aimed at obliterating poverty mm. from the family of God. It's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful work. And Christianity has basically ignored it. We've said, no, just invest and exploit as long as you tithe. That's stewardship. And it's just so far from the biblical idea of stewardship. <laughs> it's, it's even far from the Old Testament idea of tithing, which is yeah, exactly. sometimes I, I just, uh, I shake my head. It, it, uh, okay. I want to show people the book. This is a God named Josh by Jared Brock, and he is uncovering the human life of Jesus Christ. And I'm curious, Jared, why? Why does the humanity fascinate you so much, and why is it important? Well, like, I mean, so first off, I'm a human, and so <laughs> I have a hard time relating to like an all God, you know, omniscient, omnipresent, like all powerful, all knowing uh, deity, and I, I don't think I would have ever been able to connect with him the way I have if he hadn't have sent himself as God the Son and the Son of God. Jesus was fully man and fully God. That's so. What it means to be a Christian is, is simply to believe that a real human historical dude named Yehoshua ben Yehoseph was also God the Son and the Son of God. And that's a huge leap. Like, it, it's a massive leap of faith. Like, if Jesus isn't God, if he didn't resurrect, if he didn't die for our sins, then Christians are in a death cult. Yeah. We, we drink his blood and we <laughs> eat his body. What is happening? Like, and Paul says, the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus is not raised from the dead. We are to be pitied above all people. We are sure. we are mentally ill. We're crazy. And so, you know, but I've banked my life on this. I love Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? He's like, and then Paul, Peter, basically, he's like, well, some people think you're a prophet. He's like, no, but who do you say I am? He's like, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the God King. And, uh, and he's like, to whom else shall I go? Only you have the keys of eternal life. And that for me is what it comes down to. I look at Jesus' economics, his politics, his views on women and life and and heaven and and everything and i'm just like this man has to be god all right i'm gonna i love it by the way i love the simplicity and the passion of it uh, but there's one more thing i have to ask you about and that is what you call the secretive crime family that actually yes. Killed Jesus. I mean, are we going QAnon here? Tell me we're not. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah. So this was a big shocker for me, having been raised in the church. So there's this idea in society that the Jews killed you. Like every Jew in human history is somehow responsible for the murder of Jesus, including like Steven Spielberg. Like, right. So there's actually a term for this idea that the Jews killed Jesus. It's called Jewish deicide. They killed a deity. And it comes back to this verse in scripture where a small group of Jews says, let his blood be on us and our children. And so that was the license for the Catholic Church to persecute Jews for a thousand years. Huh. All sorts of just heinous ghettoization and Holocaust and all this horrible stuff. It turns out that there was a real family called the House of Annas. And they were a multi-generational crime family who ruled Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. The biggest house ever excavated in ancient Israel, 13,000 square feet of stone, belonged to this family. And they basically control the temple, they control the mint, they force people to pay way more temple tax than they are than they owe. They jack the price of, of sacrificial animals 20-fold. Um, they, 
they are there they make between 10 and 100 million dollars a year um depending on how you calculate how much income they bring in mm-hmm. and when jesus goes to jerusalem he goes into the temple and he overthrows their booths it's the, if you look outside the bible they were actually called the booths of the sons of annas there was four booths he he basically shuts down their business on the busiest week of the year passover week now the thing is the house of annas needs this cash because they have to keep bribing pilate and the and the other Caesars and the other proconsuls to keep their position as high priests. So to keep the gravy train rolling, they need to get Passover back open. And the Bible says that as soon as Jesus overthrows, they start to seek a way to kill him. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not taken to Pilate, he's not taken to Herod, he's not taken to anyone else. He's taken first to meet Annas. He's at Annas's house, and then Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest who takes him to Pontius Pilate. It's oh. that family that executes Jesus. This is this is like Godfather movie kind of stuff. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, this is, all right, I, we could keep going, but Jared, I'm, I'm gonna let you go and just tell people, uh, go pick up the book, A God Named Josh. You'll be fascinated. You'll learn about these things in more depth, as well as some other things that we didn't get to cover. It's available wherever you get books. Uh, and you know, I, I, I can, just something about you, and it's a little bit of what you said before we actually started the interview, that I just, I think we need more of. Uh, and, you know, in a day and an age where we like to argue about everything inside the church and outside the church, just this idea of, of let's, just, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's just love him. Let's just learn more yeah. about him because that, that's, the, that's the thing. Uh, you, you're probably old enough to know the Billy Crystal movie, City Slickers, mm-hmm. where uh, Jack Palance turns and says, you know, you got to know this. And it's like, what? One thing. What is the one thing? And you get that, all of life starts to fall into position. And I think, Jared, you're one thing's Jesus. Am I right? Mm. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's a poem from my childhood that I just can't get away from. Only one life, it soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else in my life is going to be burned away like dust. And the only thing that's going to be left is like a little turd of gold which is the stuff I did for Jesus. So yeah, like, I mean, I'm 37 now. I'm old. There's nothing to lose. So we got to go all out. I love it. Uh, that's Jared Brock. Uh, you can check out his website at jaredbrock.com. Uh, and the book is available wherever you get books. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Um, hope Wales is lovely for you this time of year and today. Uh, and thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Appreciate you guys out there watching. This is an interesting one. Yeah. Didn't know about the crime family that killed Jesus. You've never heard about that anywhere else. But right here on Life Today. So if you haven't subscribed, liked, followed, shared, do that now and come back. we got more for you right here on Life Today Live.